All right, well, good morning. How are you all doing today? All right, got one that is ecstatic over here. I like it. So got a question for you this morning. How do you define success? What does success look like to you? So when I was younger, if you would have asked me, all right, Andy Peterman, what does success look like as an adult? I would have said making it to the NBA. If you look at my life now and you would have asked my younger self, did you achieve success? If that's not the right word, but anyways, uh, it, it looked like no. But now that I'm older, success looks like keeping a one and a half year old alive. Um, praise Jesus for his mom. So, but it, you know, success, it, it changes as you get older. Uh, success means different things for different people. Your definition of success might not be my definition of a success. If you were to play in the major leagues for baseball, success would look like failing two thirds of the time. For baseball to be a hitter, a really good hitter, where you're making like millions upon millions of dollars, you only need to hit the ball one out of every three times and you can get paid a ton of money for that. Whereas if you are in the NFL, and you are only completing one out of every three passes, you're probably not gonna have a job. And so success is different for different people. For me, a cooking success means that you can eat it without throwing up. For Heather, a cooking success means that it's actually really good. When we were uh, not even dating at the moment, she was still living in Colorado, and I don't know if I've shared this story or not, but I'll share it right now. Um, she was living in Colorado. We were talking on the phone and she was asking me, or we were just talking, I was making dinner and she was like, oh, what are you making for dinner? And I said, meatloaf. And she was like, wow, this guy knows how to cook. Like, man, I need to nab him. And so then she's like, well, how do you make meatloaf? And I was like, I don't really understand that question. She was like, well, what do you put in it? I said, nothing. You take meat, you put it in the shape of a loaf, and you put it in the oven. She was like, this guy needs to be married for an entirely different reason now. Like, he's not going to survive without me. And it is so true. But to me, that was a successful dinner. So how do you define success? How do you define success in your faith life? What does it look like for you to have a successful walk with God? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Because as we've been looking and going through this life of Christ, Jesus is about to redefine what success is. Because some of us in our busy lives think that, okay, a successful life was I was driving to work, I had a minute to spare, and I threw up a prayer to God. And I read my verse of the day. And I put my check in the offering plate. And I didn't cuss anybody out. And that person that cut me off, I didn't tell them which number they really are. And success means all these things. And maybe that's how you define success. But what Jesus is going to show us as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that success is extremely different. Because as we looked at last week, there's this group of people that oppose Jesus, and they're called the Pharisees. And they put success as obeying the law of God, but not even just the law of God, taking God's law and adding to it. And success is God's law and all of these traditions as well. And what Jesus is going to do today is actually he's going to raise the bar. 
Because we were told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus is kicking off the Sermon on the Mount. He's given the Beatitudes. He's told us that we are to be examples to the world. We're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And then in verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the Pharisees have set the bar here, and Jesus says, it's even higher. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is going to get at is that it's not behavior modification, which is what the Pharisees were pushing for. It's a matter of your heart. That he wants what's inside of you. He doesn't want your external behaviors. He wants your heart. So if you'll join me, we'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer and then dive into our word. So Father God, we just come before you and again, just thank you that we can gather together. And God, I just pray that this morning, this message just be from you to us and that we see who you are and what you are calling for us and from us. And so God, I just pray again that you be with my voice, be with my head. God, just give me clarity and help your word be proclaimed this morning. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. So if you've been following along in our daily reading through the life of Christ, you've noticed now that Jesus' ministry has began. He's entered the scene. He's done the miracle of turning the water into the wine in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. He's come and he's gone through the temptation. He's been baptized. And then he enters in. Matthew kind of summarizes a lot of those early chapters in the other gospels with Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 where it says, From that time Jesus began to preach. And he summarizes the message of Jesus. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what Jesus is showing us in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 when he has this compilation of sermon, of the Sermon on the Mount is how we know it as, where he is showing us this is what kingdom living looks like. That you are called to be kingdom citizens, not of this earth, but of a heavenly kingdom, of the kingdom of God that is at hand. And so how do you live? You live like this. And he starts to go through and show us what kingdom living is like. And kingdom living is not behavior modification. Kingdom living is heart change. That that's what God wants. He's not looking for you to just conform to a lot of laws and traditions, but instead what he is wanting is he is wanting your inner parts. He is wanting who you are, your heart. That David in Psalm chapter 51, he prays for that. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And then he goes on to say, you don't want sacrifices. You don't want these religious traditions which is, or, or religious ceremonies, which is what the Pharisees were pushing. But he says, for you, you want a contrite heart. You want what is inside of me to be given over to you. Because the Pharisees, they looked at all the external behaviors. We, we had the, uh, Jesus talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector where the Pharisee goes into the temple and he prays. And he's like, God, I am so good. I praise you that I'm better than this tax collector. I tithe. I pray. I fast. Look at me. Look at all of my religious behavioral modifications that I am giving over to you. 
But yet what Jesus also says when he quotes Isaiah is he says, these people honor me with their lips, but what's far from him? Their heart. He does not want your behavior. He wants your heart. Because when he has your heart, he'll get your behavior. But he can have your behavior without having your heart. It makes me think of the child that is driving along, must be uh, pre-car seats and everything like that. Child is riding along with her mom, and she's standing up in her chair. And her mom says, you need to sit down. She's like, no, I'm going to stay standing. And her mom's like, you better sit down. She's like, no, I'm not going to. So her mom disciplines her, and finally the girl caves and is like, she sits down. But her response to her mom is, I may be sitting on the outside, but I am standing on the inside. The mom had received the behavior, but she had not received the heart. God can have your behavior. You know you can come here today and be like, all right, my behavior was towards doing this, but your heart can be far from here. And that's what God is seeking He wants your heart. Because the the Pharisees, again, they looked at everybody else and they thought, I'm so much better. I'm going to heaven because I'm not like all you terrible sinners out there. Whereas Jesus actually shows us it's not just that, it's deeper. Romans chapter 3, Paul said, quoting the Old Testament, it is written, none is righteous. So Jesus has just come in, Matthew 5, 20, saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and then what does Paul tell us? In Romans chapter 3, there's not one of you that is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 23, he says, every single one of you, every single one of us has sinned. All have sinned. That is an all-encompassing 99.999999, like to the infinity. The only reason there's not 100% is because Jesus walked on this earth. Otherwise, every single person that is not Jesus has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wants your heart. You see, the thing that the Jews used to believe is they thought obedience will lead to belief. And so they thought even before you believe something, if you just start doing it and obey and live your life that way, then eventually you will believe it kind of like forming a habit. They say, I think it's 21 days it takes to form a habit. And so it's like, okay, eventually this is just going to become a way of my life. And so if I can just give up caffeine for 21 days, then eventually I won't crave it anymore. If I can just stop chewing, if I can stop drinking, if I can stop a sin for 21 days, eventually I won't have that behavior. But again, sin is not a behavior It's a heart issue. Jesus tells us that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so there's so many times that it's like, man, I'm never going to say anything that I'm going to regret. Again, pretty big thing to say. And then I stub my toe and it's like stuff comes out. And it's like, where did that come from? I thought I changed that behavior. Well, it's because there's still a heart problem in there. And so you can change your behaviors all you want. You can apply yourself. And there are a lot of even non-believers that change behaviors. A lot of, there's, there's this new movement going out among celebrities. And they're kind of coming back to morality. 
where I, I don't know who the celebrity was, but he said, you know what, for 2024, I'm not going to drink as much. Well, that's a pretty good goal to set. But they're, they're making these behavioral modifications, and you're going to hear me repeat this a lot. It's not about your behavior. God wants your heart, because that's the message I want you to leave here with. That as you leave, you're not thinking, well, my behaviors are good. I want you thinking, man, God, where does my heart stand with you? Because the Pharisees thought, all I have to do is obey enough. All I have to do is behave well enough. All I have to do is keep the law enough, and I will be justified before God. But yet we just saw that Romans tells us no one is good. And actually that by keeping the law, you'll never be able to be right before God. Later on in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, By works of the law, so being able to keep it, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I'm not nullifying grace, but he says, if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. And so if it were that you could hold the standard of the law good enough to be able to earn your salvation, why did Jesus die? If that were ever an option, why did he go through the excruciating pain of the cross? If you're sitting there in your mind thinking, actually, I can, like the rich young ruler who is like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, honor your parents, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And he's like, sweet, I've done all of that. If you are thinking that, why did Jesus have to die? Because you can't. You cannot earn your salvation. The law was not to show you a way to earn salvation. The law was there to show you that you have a broken heart, that you are not right with God. The law reveals our brokenness. Before we ever broke the law, we had a broken heart. Just look at Cain. First murder, law wasn't even out there yet, and yet he has this anger towards his brother, so much so that he kills his brother. The law wasn't even there. His heart was already broken. The law reveals the evidence of our heart. Romans chapter 7 tells us this. Paul tells us, what shall I say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So Paul is saying, the law is there to show us this, that we are broken inside, that we are not right with God because it's not the Pharisees who thought, hey, this, we have met the standard, so just live like us. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, all you common folk, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And so that's what we see in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus goes through and he breaks down. This is what the Pharisees say. This is what you've heard. But I'm going to tell you it's so much more than that. That it's not behavior. It's your heart. Because again, you can change your behaviors without having a heart change. 
So Jesus, he starts out each one of these sections. We have six sections here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 48, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. So like he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Verse 27, he says, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. All right, those are two of the Ten Commandments. It's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 33, again, you have heard that it was said, do not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's found in Numbers. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 43, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. So these were kind of those regulations. A lot of them were scriptural. And so the Pharisees are like, hey, we, we upheld that. We're good. But Jesus says, nah, not even you guys are good because I'm going to go through this and I'm going to show you each time that it is way deeper than just these behavioral aspects. Because Jesus goes on in verse 22, he follows each one of those up with, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, saying, I have more authority. I'm speaking with authority. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. Oh dear, we just got on a whole new level here. Because how many of you have never been mad at somebody? We like to say, oh, it's a righteous anger. Yeah, good luck with that. Usually mine's not. He says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He says in 28, I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Oh, man. Now we're not even just talking about I haven't ever slept with somebody. We're talking about if I've had those thoughts, if I've had impure thoughts, he is saying, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, or ladies, a man also, gender inclusive here, has already committed adultery in his heart. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, well, that doesn't seem like it has to do with the heart. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses told you or allowed you to divorce your wives. So why is there that thing? Because of hardness of heart. Verse 34, I say to you, don't take an oath at all. There's this thing in the world where we have to really push our word on people. Like, man, I'm, I'm telling you, I'll be there. You can trust me. I promise, I pinky swear, I, I like will, I, I swear on my mother's grave. Like, whatever you want to say, we are trying to emphasize how reliable we can be. And Jesus is like, you shouldn't even have to do that. As believers, you should say, if you are going to do something, you will do it. He says, simply let your yes be yes. Hey, I'll be there. 2.30 in the morning, you can count on me. Man, I was up until 11.30 at night, but I gave you my word, and so I'll be there. Because as a believer, what I say is important. Jesus says, don't make oaths. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Verse 39, he says, I say to you, do not resist an evil one, but if anyone slaps you on the right, turn to him your other cheek also. I say to you in verse 44, Love your enemies. Don't just love your neighbors. He goes on to say, man, even the tax collectors love those who love them. I mean, yeah, that's the easy thing to do. 
you give me a million bucks, I'm going to love you today. But you talk bad about me behind my back, that's a lot harder to do. But yet Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And so what Jesus is doing is he is hitting on a much deeper level because we could go through that list like that rich young ruler and be like, hey, I've done those. I haven't stolen anything major. I haven't actually slept with anybody that's not my wife. I haven't murdered anybody. And Jesus is like, oh, it's so much deeper than that. I want actually your heart. I want the inside of you. So you may never have murdered anybody, but have you been angry with somebody? You may have never slept with somebody, but have you caught yourself looking at something a little bit longer than you actually should have been? You may love those who love you, but how do you find yourself about those who are talking evil about you, who really get under your skin? Are you able to love them as well? Because Jesus says, that's what I want. I want your heart. I don't want your behavior. And then Jesus sums it all up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You want to know how you should be? He says, be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. It's not the standard that the Pharisees set. It's the standard that Jesus sets. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into heaven. And he says, you must be perfect. Well, what does Jesus mean by perfect? He means perfect. What's the standard for success in God's, in God's law? If it's not 100%, it's not a success. Oh, well, I just said a little white lie. Hey, fail, you're doomed to hell. Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So technically, you have two options because sometimes we're like, you know what, I don't, I don't like the grace thing. I don't, I don't like, I had a conversation with a friend one time and he's like, I just, I don't really like that there's nothing I have to do about it. Like, I, I want something to do. And it's like, okay, if you want that, if you're like my friend, here's your other option, a perfect life. Like, that's it. 100% never sinning, and not from this moment on, but from your birth to your last breath, having never committed a sin, that's your other option. He says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you fail in one little area, James tells us, if you break even the smallest of the law, you are guilty of breaking the entire law. So if you want options, there's your two options. Be perfect perfect or take on the perfection of Jesus. You can either be perfect, live a perfect life, or find your salvation elsewhere, not based on you, not based on anything in this world. It has to be beyond this world. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so none of us are perfect. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it tells us the wages of that sin, the wages of our inability to be perfect is that we deserve eternal death. And so really, as you're reading through this section in the Sermon on the Mount, man, it should be heavy stuff. That as you're reading through that, and it opens up with, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees who are like super religious, self-righteous people, and then Jesus ends it with, be perfect, and in the middle, we're reading, oh man, my heart is not perfect. I'm doomed. It should weigh on us. And we see that we need not just that behavior change. I told you, you're going to hear this a lot. 
We need that heart change, which Jesus, being God, spoke about in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where he said, I will give you a new heart because you're not able to receive a new heart on your own. That's the thing. I can change my behavior. I cannot change my heart. I need somebody beyond me to do that. And God says, I will be the one that will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I can't do heart surgery on myself. God will remove our heart of stone from our flesh and he will give us that heart of flesh. He tells us that he's gonna give this to us, but still we have this problem. Verse 20 and verse 48. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and we have to be perfect. Even with my new heart, I'm not perfect because I'm a new creation. I've given my life over to Christ. He has put that within me, but I am not perfect even to this day, even after I've given my life to Christ. And so hold on, Jesus, how do I receive eternal life? And that's the great news about the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus came and through him, we receive a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 21, it tells us, for our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that as Jesus comes and we give our life over to him, we become a new creation. This is what we receive when we are in Christ. We are a new creation. We receive that new heart. So we are being raised to Christ through faith in him. And so not only now are we a new creation, we have a new righteousness. That our righteousness is not our own. Because did you see that in verse 21? All right, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, I can't do that on my own. But when I'm a new creation in Christ, did you see the great exchange? Verse 21, it said that Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that his righteousness might become ours. That's the only way my righteousness can ever exceed that of the Pharisees. Because it's not my righteousness. It's Christ. It's his righteousness that I'm now identified by. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see how well has Andy kept up the law. He sees he is a child of mine through the blood of Christ. And so he is now therefore right with me. His righteousness is Christ's righteousness. That is how we are now righteous before God. It's not the Pharisees' righteousness. It is far greater. We receive Christ's righteousness. So Jesus fulfilled the works of the law as well so that we are free from the law. So no longer am I looking at the law and trying to think, oh my goodness, how am I going to keep all of these today? But instead, I am free to live through the Spirit. I'm free from the law and I am guided by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 tells us this. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
So now when Jesus looks at that list of the law that we're supposed to keep, and it's like, Andy, how have you done at keeping those? Well, pretty bad, but Jesus fulfilled it. And so now I'm righteous before God. My righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Well, because of what Jesus did, it does that. Not because of mine, but because of his. That whole, therefore, be perfect, well, when you look at how I'm able to keep the law apart from Christ, fail. When you look at how Christ kept the law, it says he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. So now the law has been fulfilled through Jesus. So how am I perfect? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 tells us, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So that when it comes to my standing with Jesus, I'm perfect. When God looks at me, he sees perfection because it's Christ's perfection. That through the sacrifice of Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So I am in standing with God, perfect. As far as it comes to living this life, man, I'm not quite there yet. There will come a day where that will happen when I am ultimately glorified in my new body. But he is perfecting me every single day that I surrender more and more over to him. Every single day that I rely on the spirit to guide me, the spirit sanctifies and I will never be perfect on this earth, but he is doing a work. And Paul says in Philippians chapter one, verse six, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. So we will be perfect at some point. But right now, when it comes to standing before God, I am perfect, but it's not because of me. When we get to heaven, there will never be a I fill in the blank. Like, why should I let you into heaven? Kind of like in Matthew chapter 7, still in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, there are going to be many of you who come to me, and you say, Lord, Lord, did I not preach eloquent sermons? Hopefully. Uh, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not heal people in your name? Did I not give to missions in your name? God, did I not do all these things? And Jesus says, depart from me. Notice the emphasis there though. Hey God, look at everything that I did. Look at my behavior before you. And Jesus is like, you honored me with your lips. Your behavior was, yeah, you lined up, but your heart was far from me. And so the only I statement when we get into heaven is I relied on the work of Christ. I am perfect only because of Jesus. I am righteous before you only because of the righteousness of Christ. It is nothing to do with me. And so we are in that moment when we give our life over to Christ, perfect. And then we rely on the spirit to continue to sanctify, continue to perfect us. And so this means every day we surrender until he calls us home, until we are before him. And then we don't have to worry about struggling with sin because it will be totally removed in the new heaven, the new earth. I was talking to Rick this morning and it's like, I am sick and tired of being sick. And there's gonna be a day where we don't have to worry about that. There's gonna be a day 
where we don't struggle with these struggles. But until that time comes, we surrender ourselves over to him. But we surrender our heart to him. We give him our deepest inner being and let him work through us. And so I want to close with the prayers from the Psalms that David prayed in Psalm 139. I think this might be in your handout as well. But he prayed it in Psalm 139 and he also prayed it in Psalm 51. May this be our prayer this morning. And so if you'll join me as we close, Kurt will come up and lead us in a song. Psalmist says in 139, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, work in us, and it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. The word has been spoken this morning as we sing just